Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A, where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know what to believe. Instead of approaching the Bible to try to make it back up what we already believe, we want to know what it says so we can know what to believe. This is a for sure way for us to get things right. So our desire is to look at questions through the lens of Scripture. We want our first question to be from our study from the previous week. And uh, this last week, we talked about having a generous heart and being giving. It was not a message on tithing, but tithing came into it because it is so often mistaught. And I taught that tithing is not a New Testament principle, that even though it existed before the law, when Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, it doesn't mean that he had to. It never says he had to. It just says that he did it. And that equates to us today. You can give a tithe if you want to, if you desire to, but you don't have to. But I got a question from someone, and I brought this up in a in a couple of the studies. We have four church services on the weekend, and I brought this up in a couple of the studies, but I maybe didn't on this one, or I didn't on this one, I guess, or maybe just misunderstood it. And that is that Jesus said that we should tithe. And I want to show you um, if I got to have the passage up here, I think I do. Yeah. So I want to show you, uh, the passage that they use to say that Jesus said to tithe and try to put us under the tithe. It is Matthew 23, 23. Let's read it here. So Matthew 23, it's 23. It says, woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay a tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone, the tithing undone. So he definitely tells tells the scribes and Pharisees they should have had mercy and and justice, which can you imagine? They're tithing their spices and they're being unjust and they lack mercy. That's like Christians today saying, you know, I don't whatever, and then not walking in love. Love is the most important thing for us to do. And so he says to them that they should tithe, but they are under the law. And that's really important for us to understand. You and I are not under the law. There are plenty of people today who try to tell us that we are, but we could go to literally a hundred verses in the New Testament from Galatians, from Romans, from Hebrews, from other books that tell us we're not under the law. I've got one of them here. This is just one. The first one I came across for as many as are, are of works of the law or under a curse. For it is written, cursed is anyone who does not continue in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, they had the mountain of curses and the mountain of blessings, and they shouted the curses and the blessings back and forth. By the way, they have found the oldest name of Yahweh on Mount Gerizim, which was the curse, uh, or no, Mount Ebal, which was where they yelled the curses from, and it's got the oldest name of Yahweh that dates back to the to the. Uh, late Bronze Age, which is Joshua's day, which is absolutely amazing. But here we're told we are not under the law. If you, you want to, if you want to be under the law, then you're going to be under a curse. So we are not. We don't have to tithe. So how are we supposed to give if we are not under the law? And Jesus did not tell us to tithe because that's under the law. So I want to show you Second uh, Corinthians nine, seven, and eight. And this is the quintessential passage on giving. This is what we're told in the New Testament, the way that we should give. And every other passage on giving connects with this. Never are we told that we have to tithe. That is, it is, it is misquoting the Bible. 
It is misinterpreting scripture. It is not rightly dividing the word of God. I said on Sunday, if you go to a church where they tell you that you have to tithe, I don't know that you should leave it, but you should understand that they're not rightly dividing the word of God on that matter. So it should make you wonder on other matters as well. But just be careful. So 2 Corinthians 9, 7 and 8 says, so let each one gives as he purposes in his heart. You get to decide. If you want to give a tithe, you can give 10%. In the Old Testament, and under the law, that was their taxes. They were in a theocracy. God was in charge. And they paid about 25% by the time it was all said and done what they were supposed to give. Today, we give about 40%, maybe even a little bit more than that in taxes. Now, some give much less, um, but that was a theocracy and that's what it was about. But we are to purpose in our heart what we give. Pray about it. Make a decision and you get to choose. And this is so important when it comes to giving because you want to, as it says, not grudgingly nor of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. If you're going to be grudging about it, then don't give it and you get to choose it. So if you're grudging, then reduce the amount so you're not grudging. Be as generous as you can, not out of necessity. See, if tithing were the New Testament law, you would be giving out of necessity. For God loves a cheerful giver, it says, and God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. Now, let me just give you the criticism on this verse, is that it was not uh, one on giving to the church, that it was a collection that Paul made from the Gentiles to bring to the church in Jerusalem to take care of the poor. And so they say that this doesn't apply. I disagree. I think it applies perfectly. This is how we are supposed to give, even though they were collecting money for the church in Jerusalem. When you give to God, when you give to the poor, when you give to churches, you now make a decision what to give and don't give grudgingly and don't give out of necessity. And there is nothing in the New Testament. I went over the one verse people try to use. There's nothing in the New Testament uh, that could even get you to the place where you think um, that you could begin to tithe. All right. So good to see you guys here. Uh, we uh, have, I'm going to go ahead and take our first question. If you're here with us for the first time, glad to have you. If um, you are, then you can submit your question in the comment section, write the word question in front of it, and then read the question a couple times, make sure it makes sense, and then go ahead and submit it. And give us the Bible reference if you want to, and uh, we may pull it up and look at it on screen. I like to work through some difficulties by looking at the passage because sometimes just reading them in context helps us to get um, the understanding. I'll give you an example of that before we get to the first question. There's um, Jesus makes a statement to the disciples. I tell you, not all of you are going to that that none of you are going to see death, or not all of you will see death until you see the Son of Man in His glory. And so I'm, I'm reading Bart Ehrman's book on heaven and hell. Bart Ehrman is a New Testament scholar, but he's not a Christian. And so he makes a statement in there. They, they believe that Jesus told them that they were going to be there when he came back, that they would see him in his glory, and that this was a false prophecy by Jesus. Except if you read it in context, the very next passage says, and he took Peter, James, and John, and he took them up onto a high mountain, and he was transformed in front of them, they indeed saw him in their glory. Those who were alive, some of you here um, will, will not die before you see his glory. It happened in the very next verse. And so you've got to read it in context, or you could come away like Bart Ehrman does, who probably knows better, by the way. He is a scholar, a New Testament scholar. He probably knows better that there is a context to that verse and that we should use them. 
All right. So um, we have a question from Andre. Andre got first again today. Andre says, when encountering folks who worship other gods, is it okay to pray for them like God told Jeremiah? Jeremiah eleven fourteen. 14. Um, let me just take a quick look here. Use my noodle little uh, scripture search for um, Jeremiah. I got one set up here that I can type into. It's Bible Gateway. It is good. So Jeremiah, Jeremiah. And I got to, the only thing I have to do is remember where we're at. Jeremiah eleven fourteen. Okay. Bang, there we are. Um, so do not pray for these people. All right, so do not pray for these people or lift up a cry of prayer for them, for I will not hear them in a time that they cry. Let me just get rid of the 14 here. I want to look at it in context a little bit, just what we were just talking about. All right, so um, broken covenant, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, hear the words of the covenant, speak to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and say to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, cursed is the man who does not obey the words of his covenant, which I commanded, that's the law. We just quoted that verse, by the way, quoted a passage that said, cursed is the man. Um, and so then in verse six, um, and I answered and said, let it be. Then the Lord said to me, proclaim all these words to the cities of Judea and the streets of Jerusalem saying, hear the words of the covenant and do them. For I earnestly exhort your fathers in that day that I brought them up out of the land of Egypt. Looks like this is still the context of Israel. And the Lord said to me, a conspiracy has been found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned back to their iniquities of their forefathers. Then verse 11, therefore says the Lord, behold, I will surely bring calamity on them. And then we get to verse, what was it, 14? Uh, so do not pray for, for this people um, or lift up a, or pray for them. So that's a good point, isn't it? Of the context really giving us information. And so Andre, thank you. I appreciate your question. Uh, it's a good one. Uh, so this is Israel who has rejected God and turned their back on him. And God told Jeremiah, don't pray for these people. I'm going to say this is a specific case where he's told not to pray. Generally, we want to pray for God's people. We might be able to see someone who has become rebellious, turned their back on God, gone their own way, and we may feel that this passage applies, the spirit of this passage applies, where we don't pray for them. But as far as praying for those who don't know him, well, which is what I think your question was, Andre, when, account, when um, encountering folks who do not wor worship other gods. Um, and so there in Jeremiah, it's Israel. It's not, they've, they've gone back on their own way. They've turned away from God. They may be worshiping other gods here, but it's idolatry. Uh, and so we want to pray for those who don't know Christ. And I think that's really important for us to understand. Jesus said, bless those who curse you. So even when someone is angry at you and curses you, you want to bless them. And you want to pray for those who spitefully use you. So even when people spitefully use you, you pray for them. And this is an important principle for us uh, that we uh, make sure that we are laying that foundation of prayer. I do think there comes a time to give someone up. And um, boy, that's a hard thing to do. And the Bible does talk about um, giving some over to Satan and um, not eating with some, treating some like non-believers. And treating them like non-believers doesn't mean not having fellowship with them. It means you realize they need to be won back to Christ, even because they're, what they're doing is so incredibly severe. All right, 
So good to have you guys here with me. Good to see you, Andre. Uh, and if you're visiting with us here for the first time, visiting with us. If you're here on the Truth Quest podcast for the first time, really glad that you're here. And I hope that you are blessed by the time that we spend here today. All right. So um, let's see. We let's we have another question from Rod. Rod, good to see you. And Rod says, when we give the home to the homeless, do we know we aren't giving for drug addiction? Are we really helping them? Um, that's that's a good question. And I've had that question before as well. When you're looking at someone, Rod, and you think I really want to help them, but what if they buy drugs with it? What if they buy alcohol with it? What if it hurts them? instead of helps them. But I think that that concern should not shut up our, our, what the Bible says, our bowels of compassion, our heart of compassion. It shouldn't shut that up for us because they might misuse it. When we see someone who is obviously poor, maybe hungry, needs help, we should be willing to help them and trust that God will use that in a way that they will be honored with that. And I, I think that that's what we should do. I don't think that it's a good thing for us to say, well, I'm not going to give to them because it might be used in the wrong way. I do realize um, when you're dealing with an addict, maybe not someone on the street, maybe not someone who's homeless, but their family member, and there comes a point where not giving the money doesn't help them at all. And you try to find another way to help them. And it's not always easy. And sometimes it doesn't work because they want what they want and they want to manipulate you. Uh, but when you're talking about someone who's homeless, someone who's on the street, someone who you feel like I want to give to them, but I'm not sure if it is really going to help them, uh, then you go ahead and give to them. And I think that you, you're you taking a risk, right? But that's okay. We're supposed to reach out and help those who are struggling. And I think giving to beggars, and that's what you would call these people who are on street corners, I think it's important for us not to shut our eyes to it, but to go ahead and listen to them. I think um, also supporting things like Gospel Rescue Mission is really good because they help the homeless. And and so um, what I'll often do is keep fives or ones in my car to give to people on the street and then make an offering or give something to a ministry like Hands of Hope Salvation Army uh, that are helping the poor in a very real way. Um, and, um, I, I also, but, but I also don't want to just give through those organizations. I want to help someone who's really struggling. And, um, I pray that God would open up doors so that I would have the ability, the time to be able to give to those who are in need. I think it's so very important that we want to. And so may God open up doors for all of us. May we say to him, Lord, show me people who need help financially that I can step up and help them. And again, you get to make a decision, Rod, of how much that will be. Um, but you can do that. All right. So thank you very much for your question. I really appreciate that. Uh, we have another question from Albert. Albert, good to see you. Albert says, hello, pastor. Um, God's people were divided when the tribes of Israel broke apart. Do you see any relationship between this and the Christian church being divided into different denominations? Um, all right. So let me just take a look at this again here. <clears throat> God's people were divided when um, when the tribes of Israel broke apart. Um, I think the tribes were created and made distinct to give them a portion of the land so it could be divided to families. 
not necessarily to bring divisions into Israel. I think the passage that applies is where Paul is upset with the Corinthians and says to them, one of you says I'm of Paul, one of you says I'm of Apollos, another one says I'm of Christ. Has Paul died for you? And notice he even rebuked the one who said I'm of Christ. Because one person was saying, I'm an Apollos Christian. I'm a Paul Christian. Well, I'm a Christ Christian. But that came out of a place of arrogance and division when we are really one in Christ. And so, yeah, I think denominationalism is carnal. I think in, in the, the bottom line, it, there might have been good reasons why they made their split in the beginning, but what it produces in the heart of an individual is my church is better than your church or my denomination is better than your denomination. And we probably feel that way because we get to choose the church we go to. We just have to make sure that we see other people, other Christians in other denominations, the same as us. That we don't think that we're better because we go to a certain church or we, or we are a part of a certain denomination. And even like Calvary Chapel, it's not a denomination, but an affiliation of churches. There can be pride there. You can go, well, I'm part of Calvary Chapel and we are not a denomination. We're an affiliation of churches. Well, there's not a lot of difference between affiliations and denominations. Denominations own the buildings, the churches, they own everything. Affiliations, the individual churches own them. But other than that, the distinction is the same. Now, if, if we as a Calvary Chapel started teaching something different than other Calvary Chapels, they would ask us to leave. They couldn't shut us down. In a denomination, they can shut someone down. They can make him leave. And so there are some distinctions, but I do think, Albert, that it is carnal to be making distinctions. And I think we ought to try not to make distinctions in any way that we can. Uh, because, well, Paul was great. Apollos was great. Jesus is great. But when they tried to make distinctions and say, I'm of this person, or I'm of that person, he's clearly said, this is carnal. And I think that denominationalism is carnal as well. Um, we should enjoy our church, love it, want to tell people about it, but also encourage people in the church that they're in. I tell people at our church, don't if you know someone is going to another church, encourage them to get more involved in their church before you encourage them or to correct things in the church they're in before you encourage them to go to our church. Because I think it's so important for us to really understand that there's no difference in Christ. Certainly, the Bible said there's no male, no female, no Jew or Gentile. Um, and so there's no Methodist or Catholic or Calvary Chapelite to God. We are all the same. And I do think it's carnal. Um, but I don't know that it's like the division of the children of Israel in the promised land. I think that that was for a distinct reason to give them the land. Remember, it went all the way down to the Leverite law that if a, if a man had a wife and she didn't have a child and he died, that his brother would raise up a child for her, for him, he would marry the herb, that woman, raise a child up for him so that the land could go to that child. So that's how much God cared about making sure that they maintained the land that was there. All right. Thank you. I appreciate that. Albert, uh, we have a question here uh, from Jeff. Jeff is trying to get me into trouble about women pastors. Um, this is Amy. Um, oh, this is Amy. Okay. Uh, hi, Amy. You're on Jeff's account. So this is Amy Brooks. My um, my question is on women pastors. First uh, Timothy 2.12, what is your stance on this? Is it biblically correct for women to preach um, in authority over men to a congregation? 
Uh, let's go ahead and go there. I'm going to do this first. I'm just going to type it up and I'll bring it up on the screen for you. All right. So, um, yeah, this is the way I need to do this. So it's second Timothy two 10, no two twelve. All right. Let me just do one more thing here. I'll get better at this. It's a lot less awkward than the other one was. Um, I'm going to get rid of the 12 and just go to 2 so we can read it in context. All right, there it is. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and put this up on the screen for you. Um, so here, th this passage is a really interesting passage. It is probably the strongest passage on women um, preachers. Did I get the right place? Yeah, 2 Timothy 2. Um, be strong in grace, remember Christ, 12, and endure. <clears throat> what do we do here? We did something wrong? Take a look again. First Timothy. You guys are probably screaming at me while I was typing in Second Timothy, huh? All right. Now we're there. So this passage is probably one of the more difficult passages to deal with um, when it comes to... Get rid of that ad. Uh, that's hilarious. Um, when it when it comes to um, understanding what Paul says about women and ministry, uh, he is obviously upset in this passage. And I want to get to verse 12, and we'll see if we want to read it in context. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be silent uh, for um, Adam was formed first and then Eve. All right, so Paul's obviously upset. There is a situation taking place here that probably involves one woman. As he starts this, he goes from singular to plural. And when you read the context, you can see that. And Paul says that they must be, uh, be in silence. But it also says in the Bible that when a woman prays or prophesies, that she's supposed to cover her head. So obviously, Paul is talking about a different situation, a different circumstance. So when he says they must be in silence, he's dealing with a problem of, of a, a woman or women that are being rebellious. They're not in silence. Um, this word for authority is an interesting word. It, as, as I understand it, it is a word that you would not say of a man that he would be in that authority. It's not a good word. And um, I think, now, now having said that, um, let a woman si learn a silence. Verse 11 says in submission, I do not promote women to speak or teach. Um, and here, let's see, let's look at verse 9. In like manner, the woman adorned themselves in modest apparel with uh, propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or pearls or costly clothing. So we do know that this passage here is uh, cultural to some degree because you can braid your hair today, but which is proper for women professing good works. Let women learn to silence and be in submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority. Notice the singular there over men, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first and then Eve, um, what, uh, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and self-control. All right, so let me go ahead back here. And we'll talk about it a little bit more. Okay, so um, my stance on women as pastors. Uh, pastor comes from the word shepherd, and there are women in directors' positions over women's ministries or children's ministry that take the role of shepherding. And so personally, I don't have a problem with calling someone a pastor. 
many people do. Now in the Bible, there's bishops and overseers and elders, and these are synonymous terms for a pastor, what we call today a pastor. So our understanding of what an elder or a bishop or an overseer is, is that it's a pastor. And for that reason, we don't have any women at our church with the title pastor. Although we do have children's directors, we have women's directors. And um, I personally would not have a problem with calling the pastor, but I think it would cause confusion. I think a woman has a different role than a man and a man has a different role than a woman. And God chose for a husband to have leadership and for the woman to give respect, the Bible says, which I think is the greatest need of a man. I don't think the greatest need for a man in his marriage is to be to have someone be obedient to him. He's supposed to be yielding, willing to yield, right? Uh, James, I think it's 317. It says the wisdom that from above is first peaceable, pure, willing to yield. And we ought to be willing to yield to one another. And that means that when your wife says something that's smarter than what you think, or your wife gives you some um, advice that's wiser than what you have, then yield to her. And being obedient uh, is, it's the woman's role to go, I'm gonna be obedient to my husband, which ladies I would suggest has much to do with respect because the Bible says to give your husband respect. And I think men need respect greatly, I do. And I think what's one of the reasons there's a lot of marriage problems because the women don't respect the men. And the women say, well, let him earn his respect and then I'll respect him. Well, maybe try giving him respect because of the position. Like we're supposed to give the president of the United States respect, it says in Romans, even though we might not agree with them, even though we don't think they deserve it, we're to give them respect. And also husbands are to love their wives. And so this role, and, 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 and die for her as Christ died for the church, which is the harder part, to, to, to die for someone. And, and I encourage husbands to do it, and I see it all so often not done. Guys just don't lay down their lives for their wives. And that is really, really important. But my point is, you've got these different roles and they are equal, they're still equal. Christ submitted to the Father, the Son submitted to the Father, even though they are equal. A general and a colonel have submission and authority that goes back and forth, that one submits to the other and one has authority over the other, but one may be a better person. It has nothing to do with equality in certain areas. One may be taller than the other, one may be a rotten person, the other one be a great person, but he has to submit to the authority. It's just the rules God put into place. And when it comes to the church, God has men as those who are overseers. But I think that women get a bad rap a lot of times. They are gifted. They God wants to use women. And I think that we sh that the church has missed out greatly because they don't allow women to be in any form of leadership where this is not telling people they can't be in leadership. This is telling them that they're not supposed to be in a position of authority over. And that word for authority, as I said, is a strong word for authority. I think it's the only place that word for authority is used in all of the scriptures. I, I wanna just, while I'm talking about it, I wanna take some time to look it up in Strong's. I just wanna make sure that I'm saying it correctly on, um, on this passage. So let me go ahead and go to 1 Timothy 2, and I wanna go to verse 14 again or verse 12, I'm gonna to go to the word authority. And it, let me go ahead and put this up on the screen for you here. So um, form of a compound, an absolute um, 
an act of, of oneself dominant usurp authority over. So you see how this word is not a good word for authority. It's not the word for someone to, to have authority and in a good position of authority, but it's someone to, to act on their own, to, uh, uh, to uh, usurp authority from others. And that's really important. And I wanted to see also, um, yeah, there's just one occurrence. This is the only place in the Bible, and that's what I wanted to check. This is the only place in the Bible that you find that word for authority. So I am complementary. There is egalitarian that believe that women are equal to men when it comes to roles in, in churches and homes. There are complementarians who believe that there are differences in roles. There are horrible complementarians that abuse this situation horribly and who make um, who make me as a complementary and feel very uncomfortable because of the things that they try to do that are very unbiblical. And so I think Mike Winger is doing, I know Mike Winger is doing a whole series on complementary and egalitarian now. You can go listen to his first three or four studies. He's a very in-depth Bible teacher. Some of these studies are a couple hours long, but they're worth listening to. And I like what he says. He says, I'm a soft complementarian. And that's what I would put myself as as, as well. I'm a soft complementarian. And um, so, um, Amy, uh, I, I think that this passage is particularly interesting. I want to do a whole teaching on it uh, because it actually goes, it, it, there's something else going on here. And when you compare other scriptures, you realize there's something else that was going on. And uh, Paul was directing Timothy with this. And if you use this as your only source of a woman's role in the church, you end up with a lot of difficulties and a lot of problems. All right. So thank you, Amy. I appreciate that. Uh, we have a question from Jari. Jari, good to see you. Jari says, will the gift of giving still exist in the new heaven and new earth as a theocracy? How do you think that will look? Thank you. Uh, will the gift of giving still exist in the new heaven and new earth? Well, of course, with things that, well, I'm just trying to think. I don't think there's anything in the Bible that would help us with that. And, uh, you know, I always could be wrong when I say that. Um, sometimes I'm surprised what I find in the scriptures after I've said something like that. Um, but I don't know that it says that. But if we think it through, when we're in heaven, we're still going to be loving people. We're going to be doing some service to Christ. We're going to be ruling with him. So I, I would think that gift giving in some sense, even if it is a, a gift of service or of love or of help to someone, um, will probably still exist, I guess. Um, hard to say on questions like this. These are these are the most difficult questions to answer, questions like this. Um, you can't really get really emphatic with it at all. All you kind of do is give your opinion. Um, I don't know what that will look like. I guess I answered that. Um, I, I don't, we're not going to be living for stuff. We won't have money. There won't be poor people to give to. So it will change greatly, Jari. All right. So thank you very much, Jari. I appreciate that question. Uh, I appreciate you guys being here. If you are new here with us today, it's good to have you join us. If you have a question, you can write the word question or put a question mark in front of your question, write it out, reread it a couple times, make sure it makes sense. Add in the reference if you would like to, we could take time to look it up. Sometimes looking things up in context really helps and we can work through um, the question and maybe even find the answer in scripture. I like to do that, all right? Uh, Rakaya, good to see you. Rakaya has a question. Um, I know we do not set dates, right, for the return of Jesus, except September, the Feast of Trumpets. Um, people do do that. 
but it is possible to sense the year based on the biblical timeline. A day is like a thousand years, approaching 6,000 years since Adam, the seventh day being Christ's kingdom. Yeah, and that connection between 6,000 years is even stronger because God rests on the seventh day and the millennial seems to be a rest for the earth. And Jesus is on the throne. So the last thousand years would correspond to the Sabbath day, if that indeed is the case. Um, and so, yeah, let me just, um, let me just take a look at this again here. Um, we're not supposed to set date, but is it possible to sense the year based on biblical timelines? Um, I would say, I would say probably should just stay away from it. I, um, I say often, I think Jesus is coming back soon, but I've said that since the early eighties that Jesus is going to come back soon. And in 1988, really felt like he was going to come back by 88 because it was 40 years since 48 when Israel became a nation. And um, Pastor Chuck even said that he believed that was going to happen, that he thought Jesus would come back in 81 because you had to have the seven-year trial and tribulation period after that. And of course, it didn't happen. And I don't know that he prophesied it. I mean, he covered himself by saying, I'm not saying that this is a prophecy, but he did say that he would be surprised if Jesus didn't come back by, by 1981. Um, so... I think setting dates is just precarious in, in general. Jesus said, be ready. And we ought to say, look at the signs, look at the times. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees and scribes because they didn't know the time that they were living in. So look at the times, Rakaya. We're living in a day of lawlessness. This is the latest sign that I see that we're living in the last days. The Bible says in the last days, lawlessness will abound. Look at the lawlessness in major cities. A lot of people aren't safe at all. And the, the shootings in a major city in one night sometimes surpass mass shootings that might have happened somewhere during the day. Um, places like Chicago and, um, and New York, there are just there's so much lawlessness. I'm just not talking about murder. I'm talking about lawlessness. And that's a sign. So we can go look at all this lawlessness. And the Bible says in the last days, lawlessness will abound. Let's put our eyes in the sky. Jesus could come back at any moment. Let's look up and watch for him. So I think that's what we should do instead of setting a date and saying, I think Jesus is going to come back before 2022 is done or before 2023 is done. All right. Um, hopefully that is helpful. Um, Rakaya, sorry. Hopefully that's helpful. And um, yeah, we may be approaching that last, we, we may be approaching it really close. I can't see how we would go much longer. I do think there's a connection to the generation that sees Israel become a nation to the return of Christ. At least there's a passage that suggests that. And if that's true, then we're getting pretty close. If Israel became a nation at 48, the longest someone lives is 120 years. That would be 2068. Um, and who knows, maybe someday people will listen to that and, and laugh about it because it's past 2068. Okay, but no, let's keep our eyes on the sky because Jesus could come back at any moment. Be ready. Lord, forgive us of our sins and help us to be ready so that when you return, we will be ushered into your presence with joy because we were waiting for you. Let us be those who are found waiting and watching for the return of Jesus. Thanks, Requia. I appreciate that. We have another question from Fact Check These Hands. Fact Check These Hands, good to see you. And if you're joining us for the first time, really glad you're here. Uh, she says, uh, question, is in the millennial kingdom, and fact check these hands, I'm not sure if that's a guy or a gal, fact check these hands, 
in the millennial kingdom, will we attend church as we do now, or will it be different? My guess is different. But again, it's a guess, because questions like this are really hard to answer. Um, in the millennial kingdom, the, the temple's going to be going. There's going to be sacrifices, which will be a memorial, a remembrance to Jesus. Um, will there be synagogues? Um, God's, Jesus is going to be ruling over the nation of Israel from the throne of David. Um, all of that, it'll be different than it is today for sure. And, and that's as much as I can think about um, the way people will worship during the millennium period. You and I, what about the Gentiles in those days? I don't know. They'll obviously worship God some way. And maybe for the Gentiles who survive the tribulation period, who are serving God and have children that live during the millennium period, maybe they'll be going to church. All right. So just kind of thinking it through, which is what I'm trying to do with these questions that are so hard to answer. Maybe think it through and see if we can come to, to some obvious aspects to it. All right. So um, thank you. Fact check these hands. I appreciate it. Uh, we have a question from Empress Kimberly says, is it okay to lie to an elderly person that is not making good decisions? Example, keeping an aide that was mean to mom. Huge fight to protect mom. Wish I could have said she quit. Uh, so, okay. So I think I, I get the situation, Kimberly. As I'm reading this, um, this aide was mean to your mom. You wanted to fire her and your mom wanted to keep her. Is it okay to fire her and say she quit? Ooh. Um, I, I think I'm going to have to say that honesty here is the best policy. The, um, the 10 commandment is thou shalt not bear false witness, right? And then in the 10 commandments, it's not thou shalt not lie. But there are other passages that say, don't lie. And so I think there are things like you're going to a surprise party, have a surprise party for your husband. And you're like, we're going to the store, but I have to swing by the church first. And uh, uh, I remember for my 50th birthday, um, my, my late wife had said, um, hey, let's go to eat out and eat. And, um, and then she said, oh, I got to stop by the church, pick something up. And all, all way over in the corner of the parking lot was one of my friend's trucks parked. And I was like, oh, you know what? Let's not go in. I was driving. Oh, let's not go in. We, we'll get it later. Let's come back again. Let's go eat first. I'm hungry. So I just messed with her because I knew that it was a uh, surprise party. But I was blessed by the surprise party. And um, the lie was okay. The women in Egypt who were told to kill all the, the male babies that were born lied about it. And God honored them because they lied about it. Um, the harlot Rahab lied about the spies and God honored her. And she was saved and is even in the, the lineage of Jesus in Matthew chapter one. Um, so there, there is a time to tell a lie. Um, and what makes it okay to tell a lie when, when telling a lie protects someone else. So I'm trying to think specifically of your, of your situation, Kimberly. Um, somebody breaks into your house, says, where are your children you know, with a gun? Where are your children at? You're like, they're not home. And you're lying because you're protecting them. It would be wrong for you to say, well, I'm George Washington. I can't tell a lie. They're in the back room, you know, or they're next door at the neighbor's house. 
you wouldn't do that because you love your kids. And the right thing to do at that point is to tell a lie. And that becomes very difficult. But those situational ethics are very difficult and often are. You've got to make the right decision. So is this going to protect your mom if you lie to her? Is there a possibility that your mom would find out you lied and be upset with you? Um, I, I, I kind of feel in your situation, it's best to act honestly and maybe try to find somebody else who can persuade her, help you to persuade her. I don't know. Um, but I think that those are the reasons we can lie or we should lie when it's just a fun thing, like a surprise party, when someone's life is in danger, when you're protecting someone. And, uh, I can think of, I can think of times that I would, uh, yeah, I can think of times that I would lie. You know, you're protecting a woman from a, from a hostile husband who's been abusive. And um, you put her up in a, in a hotel room or you put her up at a friend's house or you put her up in a spare room of your house. And her husband calls or bangs on the door and says, is my wife here? No, she's not here. Thanks. I don't care if he finds out later on it's wrong. Um, but it's better in that situation to say no so he doesn't come showing up. So now... There are other pastors who disagree with me strongly on this. I got a good friend of mine, Pat Lazovich from Calvary Chapel Sierra Vista, and we've gone back and forth on this. And he says it's never a time to tell a lie, and I'm like, no, there is a time to tell a lie. And um, you know, and, and when it comes to protecting uh, my family, my kids, my grandkids, I don't have a problem telling a lie to protect them. All right. So maybe it took a little bit too much time on that question, but it was a good one, and uh, maybe I helped you work your way through that. Um, I hope it helps, Kimberly. All right. And um, this is something you have to decide, right? To pray for and decide, but make a, make a godly decision about it. Pray about it. Don't make a decision based on your flesh that what you want to do just because you're angry that she was mean to your mom. All right. So thank you very much, Kimberly, for your question. We have a question from uh, Shelly. Shelly says, question, wondering if the church off, um, offers a counselor or counseling. Um, thanks, uh, Shelly. I appreciate that. Yeah, we, um, all of our pastors do counseling, uh, and they have, you know, hours for counseling. I don't do counseling anymore. Um, I did a lot of it over the years, but I don't anymore. Um, we don't do ongoing counseling. We suggest people out to other places, but one of the things that we're praying about doing and really wanting to put into motion is a counseling center at our church where we have qualified counselors for addiction, for marriage, for abuse, um, that are that are in the counseling center. This is a great need that I think our city has, and we're really wanting to put it together. We're praying that God would bring the right person for that. We've done this before when we wanted a school. We, we wanted to have the right person for it, and God brought the right person. So we're praying that God brings the right person for this counseling center. Um, if you come in and talk with a with one of our pastors and um, and, and, um, by the way, let's see if this is, a. um, yeah, Shelly, uh, we do have women that do offer counseling at the church as well. So not just pastors. So if you feel more, more comfortable coming in and talking to a woman, then you could come in and talk to a woman. And I think that that's, um, I think we should make those things available for people because sometimes it's just uncomfortable talking to a man about something. And, uh, we do have that. So that can be a place you start. And if we feel like you need more extensive counseling, more extensive care like that, um, then we may be able to help you get to the right place, maybe be able to help you if you can't afford it to be able to do that. All right. So thank you very much, Shelly. I appreciate that. So we have a question from Psych Man. 
yeah, Psychman. Uh, you know, I calculated it last week. So Psychman asked a question. Well, let me read it first, and then I'll kind of explain what happened. Um, I was looking into those 45 days. Skip said maybe something about another judgment, how people treated Israel, sleep from uh, sheep from goats. I don't even know enough about this to discuss it. All right, psych man. And the real truth is, is this is something that no one knows. And I haven't heard an explanation that makes me go, that's it. When last week, when you brought up 40 days and I, and I, and I calculated 45 and then I recalculated to 40, I, I got kind of excited about it because I thought 40 days, I don't know that I've ever calculated it before in 40 days. And then I remembered, you know, things come back slowly sometimes. And I remembered that I had indeed calculated to 45 days before while I'm studying Daniel and come to the conclusion that I don't know. And we can make statements. You can make suggestions kind of like Skip does, um, but we don't really know. Um, we do know there'll be something significant though about those 45 days and blessed are those who make it, right? Because that's what it says, who make it to those extra 45 days. All right, psych man, I appreciate that. And I appreciate your um, diligence into looking into the word of God and um, finding those, you know, tidbits uh, that are there. All right, so we have a question from John P. John says, question, since we are to forgive those who wrong us, etc., are we allowed to sue a company that isn't doing right? Good question. Um, so as Christians, we're not supposed to sue each other but we are to look for someone with, with wisdom who could come in and can help. Um, personally, this is going to come down to some, a per, some personal decision to some degree. Personally, John, I feel like there, there could be a case where I could sue someone and um, I can sue them and forgive them. Hmm. And that kind of sounds weird, um, but I could hold no bitterness towards them and I could sue them if they've done something significantly wrong. You know, if someone were doing some work on my house, they burned it down. Then they denied the claim, my insurance denied the claim. Then I would take them to court. Now that doesn't mean all Christians would or all Christians would feel like that would be okay. But to get back the house that I lost because of their negligence, even though they denied it, I would take them to court. So situational ethics. Are, are, are more difficult in this situation. There might be a nuance that's slightly different and that nuance changes things. Um, let's restate your question a little bit. What if there's someone, what if there's someone that does something, what if there's someone who assaults you? Or, or there's a woman who gets raped by someone and she knows who it is and she could turn him in and press charges. But someone says to her, you're supposed to forgive. Is that woman supposed to press charges? I would say she's irresponsible if she doesn't because this guy's gonna to continue to do it. He did it to her, he'll do it to someone else. And so forgiveness and seeking help by the law are two different things. Now, obviously there can be situations where you should not take them to court. If it's frivolous, frivolous, if it's frivolous, then don't do it. And also be, be defrauded. I mean, that's with Christians that it says that. But hey, I've been through court cases. I've taken people to court. Um, a oil changing company blew up a samurai that I used to have a long time ago. Um, they didn't put any oil in it. 
They drained the oil out, put it out, put it out in the bay. I started it, drove about, I don't know, two or three blocks, it blew up. Uh, when I told them they wanted a, a mechanic to look at it, he looked at it, said it blew up because it didn't have any oil in it. And so then I went to court. I only had the paper with me. I didn't bring the mechanic and the judge ruled for them. And at that point, I said, never again will I do this. So I have taken someone to court over something that I felt like they needed to do it. Um, if the situation were right, I would do it again, but I would let something like that go, even a blown engine. And back then, I mean, it was the early days. I didn't make a lot of money. And so having to replace that engine was really going to put my whole family and in, into difficulties because of that. And um, today I would let it go. I would completely let it go. I'm in completely a different financial situation now than I was then. I had some stuff going on <clears throat> from a previous business that I had and um, I would let it go. All right. So thank you very much. So we have a question from Rod. How much time we got here? Another 10 minutes. All right. So Rod says, um, Matthew 24, 17 through 20. I like your analogy of the church being removed prior to the destruction in 70 AD. Isn't Jesus also talking about the rapture? All right. So um, let's go ahead and take a look at that. Matthew 24. Matthew 24, 17. Let me just pull up Matthew 24 and we'll go there. I'll put it up on the screen. Uh, so obviously this is the last day section. I think he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, okay, so here is why I think, um, here is why I think that it is talking about Jesus and the rapture. Therefore, when you see the, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Now, even there, there are those who say that that abomination of desolation happened. It hasn't. It was still in Jesus's, the future of Jesus. He said, here he says, when you see it, he also says there's a time coming that is worse than anything this world has ever seen or worse than anything it's ever seen. And the world has seen things as bad as the destruction of Jerusalem, although it was bad by the Romans and that does not fulfill it. And although the temple was desecrated by the Romans, this is not the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel. Verse 16, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains um, let him who was in the housetops not go down and take anything into, in and out of the house. And let him who is, let me see if I get it up here. And let him who is in the field not go back and get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and who are nursing uh, babies in those days. So this is the middle of the tribulation period. It's the abomination of desolation spoken of in Revelation 13, I think. Uh, or wherever it's at, where the image is put up that's given the power to talk in the temple. And when they see this, um, when you see the abomination of desolation, then flee Judah and flee to the mountains, um, not from the housetop. Um, so where is it that Jesus says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies? That's the one I'm interested in. So this one here definitely for sure is, um, let me get back here. This one for sure, Rod, is tribulation period. Uh, Jesus says, I think there's another place where he says, I'd have to take, I'd have to take time to look it up and I'm not going to do that now. But there is a place where he says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then don't go back inside. And that's the one that Israel, when they looked and saw that, that the church left Jerusalem. So the church didn't have a, a lot of, there weren't a lot of ch the church that were destroyed 
um, when Rome surrounded Jerusalem and actually for four years um, em, em, uh, embarked them for four years. All right, so thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, we have a uh, Rod. I have we have another question from Albert. Uh, Albert says, um, "Thank you, Pastor." In the breaking apart of the tribes of Israel, I was referring to the ten tribes breaking away due to the high taxes. Ah, man-made differences being like denominations <clears throat> dividing. Thank you. Yeah, I see that. So you're talking about Rehoboam, and re when the counselors of Solomon said to Rehoboam don't do a heavy tax. And Rehoboam's counselors of men his age said, no, pay a heavy tax. And Rehoboam said to them, my father taxed you, but my taxes are going to be like a waste compared to his pinky. So it's going to be heavy taxes. And 10 tribes did divide. That was the division of the 10 tribes. And Jeroboam, a servant of the Lord, uh, took and became the leader of the 10 tribes of Israel. And Rehoboam, Solomon's son, sat on the throne of David and Jeroboam was awful, an awful leader, which is interesting. He was chosen by God and told that he was going to be a leader, but he was an awful leader because he led Israel into idolatry. He was afraid people were going to go back up to Jerusalem, to Rehobo where Rehoboam was, to worship the Lord and stay there and give their allegiance to Rehoboam. Fear makes bad decisions. So he put up a golden calf in Bethel and Dan. And if you go to Dan today, this is one of the stops when we go to Israel, we hike back in this beautiful area, and there's the altar that was built by Rehoboam in Dan that they worship the golden calf on. It's absolutely amazing. And that's in that's in Judges before the time of the law. And um, it's findings like that that make me go, mm, you cannot say that the Bible isn't, that the Old Testament wasn't written long before Daniel's time. That we now have, as I said earlier, that um, the name of Yahweh on a cursed stone that was found on Mount Ebal. Um, we have Yahweh mentioned as the God of the nomads, uh, as the, the people, the nomads, the people of Yahweh, which dates back to the time of, of Moses, that, or, or shortly after that, they were the nomads of Yahweh. And that's the oldest name we have of Yahweh, and that's in Egypt. And so people say that we have Sennacherib talking about in his cylinders, talking about the attack against Israel. We have the Moabite stone talking about the attack against Israel, the same exact attack uh, from different sources. So we know that the Old Testament was written during those times. Anyway, I got distracted. I'm talking about um, archaeology there. Um, but yes, I understand. Yes, I understand what you were talking about, not their division. And um, so could that be a comparison? Um, yeah. It was, it was carnal that um, Jeroboam, uh, Rehoboam did that, <clears throat> and God had the solution of Jeroboam, but it was because of that carnality that they did that. So, yeah, thank you for that clarification. I really appreciate that. So, uh, is this Premi? Sorry if I say your name wrong. Is that a, is that a name from Hunger Games? Premi, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, this question, what happened to those zombies? that were raised when Jesus died? Where did they go? I love, I love the way you worded your question. Um, that will make a perfect thumbnail on YouTube. Uh, the, that time there were zombies in Jerusalem. Or th that time there are, were zombies in the Bible. That, that would be perfect. Um, 
Thanks, Premi. I appreciate your question. Uh, zombies, I don't think they were zombies. Um, the earthquakes shook open, and I don't think their dead bodies were, like, were wandering around the streets of Jerusalem. Um, that's a great look. And um, uh, gosh, you, you could be some satire you could do on that. Um, I think that they were raised and that it was a sign to the people of the resurrection power of the cross. And um, I don't know what happened to them. I don't know that they would have gone back into the grave. I don't know if they went to the, in, into the, you know, Abraham's comfort. I don't know if, you know, whatever was happening to them in Sheol, um, in the Old Testament, to a believer that died, um, if they were in a holding place, whatever it was, maybe they went back there. But they were allowed for at least a while to roam uh, in Jerusalem. They were seen by people. Um, but thanks for your question. I got a kick out of that. That time that there were zombies in uh, in the Bible. All right. So hopefully that's helpful. All right. So um, we have another question from Kay. This will be our last question today. I appreciate you guys being here with me. I hope that you guys are blessed. Uh, we do this every uh, Thursday, every excuse me, every Wednesday, every Saturday at four o'clock. And we like to connect it to the study beforehand. So tonight we're going to be talking about love. We're going to be talking about the most important thing for Christians to do above anything else is to walk in love. And that's for a lot of different reasons. Overcoming temptation, our interaction with one another, our evangelism are all connected to walking in love. And so that'll be about an hour from now. All right. So um, if you have a question, if you watch that, or you attend and you have a question, you can write your question anywhere on YouTube. Just go to any video on YouTube and write a question. And they put them all together so they're in one place for me. And I'll be able to get your question and we'll look at it at the beginning of next uh, of our next uh, Q&A. All right, so we have a question from Kay. Kay says, in Exodus 13, 21 through 23, and Exodus 14, 19 through 21, it refers to the pillar of cloud. Were these showing God in three persons. Another place Jesus was shown in the Old Testament that was ignored by the Jews. Ah, pillar of cloud, showing God in three persons. Um, maybe we'll talk about this later, Kay, and you can clarify it in, in another Q&A. Um, I'm trying to think of the way in which the um, cloud would have been like three persons, pillar by day, fire by night, guiding them. And maybe that's three, guiding like the Holy Spirit, pillar by day, pillar by night, pillar for different times, Jesus and God. I, I, I don't, yeah, I don't know. That's interesting. So I call this the complexity of God, Kay. And we find it in Genesis 1, let us make man in our own image. There's the complexity of God. When the angel of the Lord speaks from the burning bush, when the angel of the Lord speaks to Gideon and speaks about Yahweh, but speaks as Yahweh, that's the, the complexity. When God calls his son, God, God, your God has anointed you, the Messiah. When God calls the Messiah, God, um, that's the complexity of God. There are two passages in the Old Testament that actually do show, as you said, the three persons of the Godhead, that there's actually three. And um, there, it is very powerful. And you see this complexity all the way through the Old Testament, this complexity with God. You, um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. The word for one there is achad. And as far as I understand, achad 
is a group of one and kind of like grapes or, you know, whatever. And so that would be the word of God. Uh, does that mean that there, that God's like three different grapes? No, it's just the complexity of God. And you see that, as I said, all the way through the Bible. Um, let us go down and see what man is doing with the Tower of Babel this complexity of God all the way through it. So could the pillar of, of cloud by fire and day and night be another one of those points? Maybe. And I, I'll take a closer look at it um, when I get a chance. Um, but good to see you guys. Good to have you here. Uh, and if you wrote a question out, you may want to join us again. Uh, and you can ask your question in a future Q&A. Uh, but really good spending time with you. Hope you are really blessed. Stay close to Jesus. Um, love him and love the people around you. Remember, we've got a Bible study in an hour from now, uh, about an hour and 20 minutes from now, we'll have the Bible study. We'll have worship in an hour um, at calvarytucson.com. You can watch it on YouTube. You can watch it on Facebook, uh, um, Calvary Tucson's YouTube page, Calvary Tucson's Facebook page, or you can join us in person at either campus tonight. It is Wednesday night. We'll be at the, both the East and West Campus, uh, East Campus at 6, West Campus at 7.15. So I appreciate you guys. Um, love you. Love uh, the community that God's building here, and I hope to see you guys soon. Uh, next um, Saturday, we'll have our next Q&A, Lord willing. All right, so I'm out. God bless you guys. We'll see you later on.